But then, you know, downtown, the condition of downtown was a significant voting issue for people. So I think she's making a mistake in that regard, but it may pay off. Lincoln died for black civil rights. He, he just as much as Martin Luther King. He was a martyr to African-American civil rights. As you know, the rest is history. A couple of years later, Ted emerges as a suspect in all these murders that were, or disappearing girls that were going on. So I became the Bundy specialist. That's Stuart Elway, John Roadhamel, and Eric Larson. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Stuart Elway is founder of the Crosscut Elway Poll, and he just released his latest poll on how Seattle voters are leaning in the mayoral race, the two Seattle City Council at large positions, and that race that's uh, quite tight, and the Seattle City Attorney's race. There is a move to moderation, but it's too close to call. Stu will talk about this later. I don't recall elections in our history with having such a diverse view on where this city is headed. It used to be, well, I was for candidate A, but candidate B won. Let's get on with our lives, and we'll revisit this in four years. It seems to me that with the diversity of views on the future of Seattle, this is an extremely important race, a race in my lifetime that is as important as this one. John Roadhamel wrote a book, America's Original Sin, White Supremacy, and John Willicks Booth. Was the Civil War about states' rights, as the South would like you to think, or really was it about ending slavery? Roadhamel makes the case that it was all about slavery. And John Willicks Booth murdered Lincoln simply because he was a white supremacist. The other voice you heard was Eric Larson. He was a well-respected journalist with the Seattle Times in the latter part of the 20th century. This interview took place in 1998 when I hosted Voices of Experience on Kixie, and uh, Eric talked about how journalism was going downhill then. So it's really interesting that that conversation started a while back. Also, we talked about his biggest story of his career, and that is Ted Bundy. Fascinating interview and discussion with him about that. What is Voices of Experience all about? Remember the jet that took off from LaGuardia Airport several years ago and made an unscheduled landing in the Hudson River? My question is, who would you rather have in the cockpit? Captain Sully, a veteran pilot of 35 years, or a pilot on his or her maiden flight? If you said Captain Sully, that means experience is important to you. So we talk with people with experience in various fields, like public affairs, like today, Self-employment, like today, travel, lifestyles, health and fitness, and history, like today. If you're looking to make a career move, tune in to Reigniting You with Lisa Downs every Monday afternoon at 3 p.m. right here on Kixie. Lisa addresses mid-to-late life career moves for those over 40. Should you stay with your traditional job right now, or is it time to make a change? Should you retire or semi-retire? Tune in to Reigniting You with Lisa Downs at 3 p.m. on Kixie. Back with Stu Elway in just a moment. Well, the election is approaching very quickly. 
The date is November 2nd, but you should be getting your mail-in ballots very shortly. Make sure you get them in the mail and you vote. As we always say, and we talk about this in my interview coming up with Stu Elway, that this is the most important election of all, except for the last election and the one after this one. But when we're talking about Seattle and our next mayor and some city council people being elected and a city attorney, there are incredibly big differences in all the candidates running. So that's why this is very important election for Seattle. We've seen a lot go on the last couple of years here. A spoiler alert, as I talked to Stu, it looks like there is a movement towards more moderate candidates, but there are no guarantees. So anyhow, let's just get right to it. Talking to Stuart Elway, and he's the founder of Elway Research, and that has kind of gone into a collaborative partnership with Crosscut, so it is now called Crosscut Elway Poll. My interview with Stu Elway. One of the things, Stu, that I did see on your report, basically, is that moderation appears to be leading. Yes. Uh, we asked people um, about the four races, the citywide races, and then we asked four uh, questions about issues that are on people's minds. We know we kind of know what the top issues are, so we asked about uh, homelessness and policing and downtown. And so we put we put all of those together. We made a little index, and there, there's people are on the side of kind of changing the way the direction that the city has been going. Uh, more often than not, it's not a it's not a tidal wave, but it's certainly a current, and um, people. Uh, most a majority of people wanted to change things in the city uh, more often than keep the things going in the same direction. So we had there, there's there's a of the four races there are there's a clear uh, I, labels are hard in Seattle because you know there aren't very many conservatives. So there's a there's sort of a hard left and a and a moderate left. So we'll call let's call it um, uh, the the real progressives and then and the moderates and there's there's one of each in each of the four races so people have a, a pretty clear choice on the uh, mayor two council and the city attorney races. Well, let's start, uh, Stu, with the uh, first one. Let's talk about Bruce Harrell and uh, Lorena Gonzalez. Forty-two to twenty-seven percent. Your poll showed with twenty-five percent undecided. So does Bruce? Harold now uh, pop open the champagne? No. Uh, we we conducted this survey just the the week right after Labor Day, which is the traditional start of paying attention season to these elections. Uh, and we did it that way on purpose, to just to see w- what it was kind of like at the, not the starting line, but maybe the gun lap of the, of the race. Um, and with thirty, there's really about thirty-one percent that were uncommitted uh, to either of these candidates. So that's a large number, and we found that in all the races, and we'll go through them. But uh, that's a large number for this time of the year. So he's got a he's got a fifteen-point lead. So hit, the question for him will be whether he can consolidate that lead and fortify it uh, over these last five six weeks of the campaign uh, by 
um, attracting more of these voters who want to change the way things are going because um, Gonzalez clearly represents the, the the direction the city hall has been going. She's president of the city council and, and one of the more outspoken uh, leaders of that side of the uh, of the debate. So he, he can't crack open the champagne, but it's a good place to be at this point. Yeah, I'm kind of surprised he has that big a lead in early September. I thought when you looked at the primary results, they were within a percent or two. Yeah, they were. It's a different electorate. Um, the We sampled among uh, what we consider to be likely voters for the general election, which is somebody who has voted in at least one of the last two city general elections. And that's about, that's just over half of the electorate. We're expecting about a 50% turnout probably. That's what it was four years ago. Um, so uh, that's a larger electorate than there was during the primary. And uh, that that changes the composition somewhat. I see. So, um Okay, so on to some other races. Let's talk about uh, the ones that you actually um, took polls on, and that's City Council Number Eight, mm-hmm. and that's uh, Teresa Mosqueda and um, Kenneth Wilson. And I look at it that it's thirty-three percent for Teresa, seventeen percent for Ken, and then a whopping forty percent undecided. But um, I still think that this would be something of a very comfortable lead for Teresa, but you say otherwise. Well, it's a lead. It's, I wouldn't call it comfortable for this reason. If you're an incumbent and you only get 33% in a poll and there's, there's 40% on the side, actually 50% uncommitted in the race, they, didn't, they either said they were undecided or they didn't answer or they said they weren't going to vote for either of these two. So there's there's 50% of the voters out there to be had and you're the incumbent. That's not a ringing endorsement. The advantage for her is that Ken Wilson uh, came out of nowhere to be the opponent here. She was considered sort of a shoe-in candidate, uh, high-profile, higher-profile candidates didn't file. Ken Wilson... Uh, got through the primary largely on the basis of his voter pamphlet statement, which people really liked. Um, so um, she's she's clearly the favorite, but it's not a strong endorsement. It had had uh, a more well-known candidate uh, emerge, she might be uh, in trouble right now. But but doesn't look like she is. Yeah, you know, I just talked to people and. People who are again may the more of the moderate side, but um, they're just very thrilled about Ken Wilson doing as yeah. well as he has, and they're rooting for him because, again, he just seems to be talking common sense. Yes, yeah, that that was the appeal. Um, as I said, his most of almost any, anything anybody knew about him came from his voter pamphlet statement, which which I said people really, uh, as you said. Uh, said it sounded like real common sense and real practical approach to things and people responded to that i didn't think that the voter pamphlet had that much uh, influence but obviously it does well you know we have found for years and years and years that uh the voter pamphlet ranks at or near the top of the way people get 
uh, information about these candidates, particularly on lower visibility races. I mean, you know, they're not going to decide for president on basis of the voters pamphlet, but on races where they're not that visible, um, it becomes more um, valuable to voters as you kind of go down the ballot. And in city council races, I mean, those are they're, they're fairly visible races, but it, they're still not, you know, at, at the level of U.S. senator, or president, or governor, things like that. So people, Certainly. people read them. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Uh, city council number nine, Sarah Nelson came in with 31%. Nikita Oliver came in with 26%, 34% undecided. What's your right. observations about this race? Oliver finished a strong third in the mayor's race four years ago. Uh, so she's better known. Nelson has run before, uh, but didn't uh, didn't finish well. So um, here again, this is a, a, a case of the more moderate candidate leading uh, the more uh, progressive candidate. Uh, so the, the question is going to be for... Uh, these two candidates, for Seattle and this candidate, well, uh, Sarah Nelson is a uh, owner with her husband of the Fremont Brewery, so uh, is sort of a can see a sort of a business candidate, even though she was uh, a council staffer before. Uh, and who did she work for? Uh, Conlon. Okay. Um, and who was defeated by Sawant? Ah, um, all right. Yeah. Uh, so uh, she knows City Hall, she knows the issues, but she can be seen as a business candidate since she owns a business and, and sort of swims in those waters as well. Oliver is a community activist, a strong um, defund the police person, um, uh, and and uh, has her support is from younger people, renters. Um, lower income folks nelson's is from homeowners um older folks so it's a real it really kind of shows the the uh the divide in the city and people have a clear choice uh on the direction they want the city to go in this race is there any indication about who will turn out looks to me like 35 to 40 percent of the people are undecided at least they're saying that now with almost everything yeah is there an indication to you looking over the past that will moderates turn out more of this 40 percent or will be the more of the activists well it, it's going to be pretty close um and, and i should point out that we have high undecided in each of these races but uh, only 16% of our sample was undecided in all four of the races. So uh, even as early as uh, the first week in September, people were working their way through this ballot. And, and you know, again, as we said, there, there are a lot of unfamiliar faces on this ballot that people are learning about. But I think they're, they are working their way through. Um, so they aren't undecided on all these races. The, the, um, the electorate is likely to be uh, made up mostly, just over half, of people who've lived in the city for 20 years or more, most likely to be uh, homeowners, not renters. The city the city as a whole is about 50-50 now. Actually, there's there are more renters than owners for the first time, but 
this electorate is likely to be more something like 60% homeowners and, and less renters. So um, it's likely to tend a little more moderate. City attorney, we didn't talk about that yet, Ann Davidson against Nicole Thomas Kennedy. Again, 45% undecided, but Ann Davidson is leading 26 to 22%. And again, we have a clear distinction here in what candidates are very different. Well, this is the clearest distinction on the ballot. Uh, we've got we've got two uh, un, relatively unknown candidates uh, with widely divergent opinions about how uh, crime and policing ought to be dealt with in the city. And Davidson uh, wants to increase policing and not crack down exactly, but pay more attention to street crime and misdemeanors. Nicole Thomas Kennedy is a proud, self-proclaimed abolitionist. She wants to uh, cease the um, prosecution of uh, misdemeanors and to defund the police pretty radically. Uh, Davidson uh, ran last year as a Republican for uh, lieutenant governor. The real question here is, will Seattle voters elect a Republican once they find out Davidson is one? I mean, I think that's not well known now. She just was endorsed yesterday by two Democrat governors, Greg and Locke and Charlie Royer, former mayor Democrat. Or will the voters prefer someone who wants to significantly defund the police department and decriminalize most misdemeanors? both of which positions are opposed by sizable majorities in the cities. Pe- people don't want that. We asked them about the about that in the poll, and, and people want more policing, not less. Yeah. yeah, it's different times now, and it's not surprising that we are seeing these types of different campaigns emerging now because for a while there, it obviously just seemed the like-minded people were getting elected, and like politics does do – it swings one way, and now it's kind of swinging towards the center again with the candidates. Right. But who will they be successful, or what's going to happen? You know, ultimately here, and um, I certainly know how I feel about it, and I'm much more for the moderate candidates than I'm, you know, for the what we've been doing. Right. And uh, that brings me to something else too, and that would be candidate Bruce Harrell, and he seems again to be the choice. But it seems to me from talking to other people, it's just more of a anti uh, Lorena Gonzalez vote because she's L- Lorena Gonzalez. But his campaign is not one that is jumping out, and you feel, oh my gosh, I really got to support this guy. He's like playing it really safe, yeah. Uh, as he's running, do you have a comment on that? Yeah, he does, uh, and I think he's uh, he is. Um, that's another uh, interesting aspect there is, you know, they were both on the city council. Uh, he was president of the city council up until, you know, two years ago, but, but he has sort of slipped that news. <laughs> that's what you could say, uh, in the campaign by, uh, emphasizing other things, playing it safe. He's done a, a real, yeah, playing football for the Huskies and his yeah. family and all that. Uh, historical. Yeah. yeah. Right, right. And he's been very active at, at retail politics. I mean, he's he's really been around the city and meeting with people. And it's not a flashy campaign, but it's it's the old-fashioned retail politics kind Steady of stuff. Steady Eddie. Steady Eddie. Whereas, don't make mistakes. Stay away from mistakes. Yeah, yeah. And, and – um, 
don't remind people that you used to be on the city council. The council has had uh, pretty terrible job performance ratings for several years now. So, you know, you can not be tarred with that brush. Meanwhile, Gonzalez is running a campaign of just to her base, solidifying her base uh, and, and trying to turn out her folks, which are the, you know, the activist uh, people in the city, to the extent that she didn't even return the questionnaire from the downtown uh, association. She's sort of very visibly snubbing downtown. Boy, that's not we- smart. Well, uh, most, or is it? I don't know. Well, well, you know, in our in our poll, most people wanted to. I mean, aside two thirds of the of our uh, sample wanted to direct significant time and resources to restoring and revitalizing downtown, and that was one of the top issues: homelessness, crime, and policing, housing costs. Um, but then, you know, downtown, the condition of downtown was a significant voting issue for people. So I think she's making a mistake in that regard, but it may pay off. You know, it may may be enough. It's going to depend on turnout as we've just as we've just talked and um, who's who shows up gets to decide. My thanks to Stuart Elway for sharing the poll results for the upcoming election November 2nd. And again, your mail-in ballots should be in the mail about now. So you'll be getting them shortly, I am sure. It looks to be a very tight election. Nothing's in the bag. It appears that the moderates have somewhat of an edge right now, but there are so many undecided, which is probably typical in this type of environment. But who knows? Just get out there and vote because this is a very important election. I mean, almost every candidate, they're not just somewhat different. They have vast differences in how they're viewing the future of Seattle. So it's on all of us to make sure that we participate. And I ask that you take Stu Elway's final words very seriously when he said, who shows up decides. You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. All one word. April 14, 1865, after nearly a year of conspiring, John Wilkes Booth shot Abraham Lincoln as the president watched the production of Our American Cousin at Ford's Theater. Lincoln died the next morning, and 12 days later, Booth was fatally shot by a Union soldier after an extensive manhunt. John Rodehamel recently wrote a book called America's Original Sin, White Supremacy, 
and John Wilkes Booth. What distinguishes his book from others about the assassination of President Lincoln and the Civil War is that he believes the Civil War was all about white supremacy, not states' rights or other issues which may have been suggested over the last century and a half. My interview with John Roadhamel. What do we know now that we didn't know prior to your book? I wouldn't say that my book is going to change understandings of the entire Civil War. I do think that uh, I have uh, brought out the motivation of white supremacy as one of Booth's most important uh, motives in a way that hasn't been done by any previous writer on the assassination. But I do embed the assassination very much in the politics of the 1850s and 60s. The main thing is the interpretation of white supremacy. You could say in a way that it's obvious that Booth was a white supremacist since he supported the South and the South was for white supremacy. But it really hasn't been brought out in the past how uh, explicit he was in his own writings and in things he said to other people that that were uh, were recorded. He was a typical Southern gentleman of the time. He defended slavery. He believed that black people were inferior to white people and that slavery was a benefit to them. And he believed that uh, Abraham Lincoln, whom he sometimes called Abraham Africanus, King Abraham Africanus I, he thought uh, uh, Lincoln was a traitor to the white race. He had plotted against Lincoln for the better part of a year before the assassination. But what set him off was uh, when he heard Lincoln give the last speech Lincoln ever gave on April 11th, 1865, uh, just three days before the assassination. Lincoln was addressing a crowd outside the White House. They were celebrating the surrender of Lee's Army of Northern Virginia. And Lincoln praised the soldiers, and he noted what a happy occasion it was. But he went on to make a really extraordinary uh, uh, proposal. And he said something that no American president had ever said before, publicly or privately. Lincoln said that he preferred now that black men be given the right to vote. And Booth was in the crowd, not far away from Lincoln, actually. And he said, that means Negro citizenship. Now, by God, I'll put him through. That's the last speech he'll ever make. Lincoln died for black civil rights. He, just as much as Martin Luther King, he was a martyr to African-American civil rights. One of the things that I was uh, more interested in, I heard from time to time that John Wilkes Booth had a plan to kidnap Lincoln. Do you think he would have preferred to have kidnapped him if it hadn't fallen uh, apart? There are, there are a couple things to say about that. One is that any attempt to kidnap Lincoln, even if that was sincerely what Booth wanted to do, any attempt to kidnap him could end in his death. Uh, Lincoln was a prodigiously strong man. He would have fought back probably. And if they had gotten him into a carriage and taken him away, there could have been a shootout with pursuers. I think that Booth was sincere about the capture plot for a while, but I think after, after a while he was thinking about assassination. He kept up the uh, the kidnapping plot because it was a way to recruit 
uh, followers. Yeah, and also the other thing that you talked about, uh, too, that I've heard from time to time over the years, well, this is Lincoln, he said a statement of something, if I could end the Civil War and not end slavery, I'd do it. And it wasn't about slavery, it was about states' rights and other things. You seem to put that to rest in your book. This was about ending slavery. The war was about slavery, and as far as that famous and famously misunderstood public letter to Horace Greeley, where he said, if I could leave all the slaves in slavery and save the Union, or if I could free them and save the Union. He was saying he didn't care about the fate of slavery. That was that was a setup. He already knew it. Lincoln knew at that time that he was about to issue an Emancipation Proclamation. So by telling Greeley in this letter that was read by millions of people that all he was trying to do was save the Union, that meant that two or three weeks later, when he issued the Emancipation Proclamation, if people remembered that, they'd say, oh, he's only doing this to save the Union. He doesn't care about slaves. And it'd be more likely to win acceptance if, if people regarded it that way. It's a famously misunderstood uh, uh, sentence, and Lincoln's detractors and neo-Confederates love it. They use it to this day. Lincoln... Lincoln for political reasons, disguised his commitment to emancipation. And he did it so successfully that his emancipationist legacy is still disputed today. When the Civil War ended and Reconstruction started, there was a effort in the South. And I think what you're saying just there is to, to reconstruct what happened, and it didn't have to do with slavery. And that was kind of the intent of people to feel better about why they fought the war. I think so. And that's called the lost cause, capital L, capital C. It came up uh, very soon after the war. And one of its precepts was, yes, the war was not about slavery. The war was about uh, uh, states' rights and self-determination and that kind of thing. And that, too, the reason the South lost is because they were overwhelmed by by this um, sort of mechanical war machine of the North, and that they had really been the, the better soldiers, and they'd fought a noble fight. This uh, defeat was very, very bitter for the Southern white people. I mean, they had been sure they were going to win the war, and they didn't. Um, so the lost cause has, has been around ever since. And you could say, in a way, that the Confederacy lost the war but won the peace by dominating the uh, national dialogue on the Civil War. Uh, polls today show that most most Americans think that the Civil War was about states' rights. Only a minority think it was about slavery. Whereas at the time when the war broke out, everybody knew it was about slavery. And the Southerners said, we are seceding specifically to, to save African slavery. That's why we're leaving the Union. That's what we're fighting for. Thank you for putting that myth to rest. The celebration of the emancipation and all that lasted a really very short time. Then we went back into the mindset of segregation, separate but equal and all that. And then we took another 100 years or so to try to get some equal rights back, and then was the same argument in the early 1960s about this is about states' rights. It's not about you yeah, know uh, yeah. that, and mm-hmm. we, go, we go through it again. 
in the epilogue to my book uh, that discusses uh, discusses uh, Reconstruction and the betrayal of the emancipationist legacy of the Civil War, there's a quote from W.E.B. Du Bois where he said the uh, the slave gained freedom, stood in the sun for a moment, and then moved back again towards slavery. And uh, that's that's what happened. Do you see that some of the things that caused the Civil War in 1861 to 1865 and all the buildup to it, there are similarities today that we need to look at that we could have another Civil War? I don't think we could have another Civil War because the geography doesn't work toward that anymore. But there are some striking parallels, I think, Uh In 1860 and 61, 11 states left the Union, and they left the Union, they said, because Abraham Lincoln and the Republican Party were bloodthirsty abolitionist fanatics who intended to abolish slavery in the South, make black people equal to white people, and um, uh, force white women to marry black men and they sincerely believe these things and because of those beliefs they left the union fought this great war which destroyed the south and killed a quarter of its military aged men and ended slavery forever they rushed into this gigantic catastrophe because of delusional events none of these things were true it was as made up as the idea that a bunch of uh, blood-drinking pedophiles are, are running the world today. It was it was a delusional belief, and yet it led to it led to war. And there are apparently a lot of Americans today that harbor delusional beliefs. That's John Rodehamel, author of America's Original Sin: White Supremacy and John Willicks Booth. Google America's Original Sin, John Rodehamel, if you want to read more about his book or secure your own copy. Now, it's a page-turner. You really do learn more about what kind of man John Willicks Booth was and what drove this famous actor to commit such a horrific crime. That's America's Original Sin by John Rodehamel, and Rodehamel is spelled R-H-O-D-E-H-A-M-E-L. When a flock of geese knocked out two engines on U.S. Airways Flight 1549 right after takeoff from LaGuardia Airport, who would you want in the cockpit? Captain Sully or a pilot on their maiden flight? If Captain Sully was your choice, then experience is important to you. And that's what Voices of Experience with Paul Casey is all about. People with experience in their chosen fields. A variety of topics are explored, including local and national public affairs, self-employment, travel, lifestyles, health and fitness, history, and adventure. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Voices of Experience is simulcast on AM 880 KIXI and 1150 AM KKNW on Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Voices of Experience is also rebroadcast on Kixie Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. 
I had a segment on my radio show 25 years ago called Profiles of Experience. It aired on Kixie. I was then, as I am now, drawn to people with experience in or retired from their professions. On a side note, I generally get better interviews from people who have retired. Generally, they are not so guarded or cautious. What do they have to lose? I also still find that people who are no longer in the limelight appreciate being asked to express their views on contemporary problems. I think it's a shame that people who have attained so much wisdom and experience in life are sidelined because their hair is turning gray. That's an unfortunate consequence of a culture that is dominated by youth. I believe the following interview from 25 years ago will drive this point home. If you have been living in the Seattle area since, let's say, at least the 1980s or before, you probably remember the name of Seattle Times columnist Richard Larson. He was a well-known journalist who was also known for his fairness. His most controversial story, and the one we talk about in this interview, is his coverage of Ted Bundy. He admits in the interview that this was his biggest series of stories of his career. He covered the arrest, escapes, and the trial of Ted Bundy. Some people thought at the time that he may have come to the defense of Ted Bundy too often. And we talk about this in the interview. So let's get to it. Richard Larson, a true profile of experience. Our guest this week on U.S. West Profiles of Experience is former Seattle Times columnist Richard Larson. Mr. Larson, how did you get into the newspaper business? Well, I think rather than my getting into it, I think it sort of enveloped me over the years. When I was a kid in grade school, a um, teacher had me write a piece that uh, appeared in the school paper, and it was pretty heady to see your own stuff in print. <laughs> and uh, then later uh, at high school, and then later uh, when I was in the Army, it just happened that I was working on a newspaper. And... Uh, so eventually, when I was in college, after playing around with two or three other majors, journalism kept bugging me. Well, then I became a major, and uh, no regrets. The, the, the thrill, I, I think, was uh, being involved in something that's really happening that's important. That's pretty exciting stuff, and be the first to know. What do you consider your biggest story? Well, I suppose the consensus on that one would be the coincidental uh, story I that also sort of pursued me. In 1972, during uh, covering the governor's race of Dan Evans that year, I became acquainted with a nice young man named Ted Bundy who was working in the Evans campaign. I wrote about Ted eventually, did a column, and he came into the Times, and we took his picture. It was newsworthy because uh, there was some evidence or some allegations, I think, for the Democrats at that time that Ted had behaved as a spy for the Evans uh, camp, and uh, I knew otherwise, and so wrote a piece. Anyway, that developed a relationship, and then, of course, as you know, the rest is history. A couple years later, Ted emerges as a suspect in all these murders that were or disappearing girls that were going on. So I became the Bundy specialist and uh, covered Ted for the ensuing years, spent a lot of time with him in jails. And also down on his execution, ultimately, in Stark, Florida. So that was probably the big one. Now oh. that you're away from that for a while, you have any different thoughts than when you were going through it? No, I, I feel pretty comfortable with it all. Um, one of the things that I did 
and I tried very hard, worked very hard at for all the years, is to maintain an objectivity about the case and to assume innocence during those years when everybody was uh, leaping to the conclusion that Ted was guilty. There was certainly some evidence, but I sort of held my uh, judgment and wrote in a very restrained way about the approaching uh, trials. To the extent that I was accused of um, being a public relations person, I refused to accept his guilt before a jury delivered that guilt. That was one of the most important and demanding elements of that story. Other areas, of course, my specialty was writing politics for the Seattle Times over um, so many years, a couple of decades or more. And some of the work that I did there is actually more rewarding. I remember starting in 1983 and 84, discussing and writing about uh, higher education in the state of Washington. Our higher education institution and structure was in terrible decline at that point. And uh, I sort of wrote for years about the need to have a vibrant higher education system in the state to produce the kind of trained workforce that's necessary to create a vital economy. I think there was a lot of payoff for that. It, I raised or helped raise that issue in uh, priority, uh, political priority in Olympia. Mr. Larson, what do you think about the general media coverage today? Oh, gosh, it's just a dramatic change. I've, I've watched the revolution. First appearance of television as a conveyor of news and information. You know, the Edward R. Murrow days and all that. And uh, today now, we... And uh, we in the newspaper business sort of dismissed TV as uh, as kind of an entertainment novelty, not a very significant factor in news. Today, the surveys indicate that most Americans get the majority of their news information from television, and so um, <clears throat> for the newspapers, it's it's a very very tough challenge. We have mixed I have mixed feelings about it. I I know there are some doggone good reporters working today and some darn good editors that care a great deal. Others, I think, are more caught up in trying to compete with television and, and turn out stuff that's entertainment and amusement as opposed to hard news. I miss depth coverage of some of the political issues that uh, I know are out there, <laughs> but I don't see it getting covered. Are you generally optimistic about the future of the Puget Sound region and the country? Oh, I'm high, high, high. I'm very bullish on the Puget Sound country. For, for a couple of reasons. We're positioned so well economically for uh, international trade. We happen to have lucked into being a magnificent place for the whole technology sector. And in some ways, I think Boeing fits into the technology world as, as so. So I think we have the possibilities of um, even greater growth and dominance in the future. And simultaneously, we have a culture here of preserving this beautiful environment. Um, I just finished um, not long ago an interview or a series of interviews with uh, uh, 55 or 60 CEOs of top businesses on the east side. And unanimously, they were determined. Uh, they told me that uh, they wanted to give high priority to keeping the environment and quality of life we have. So I think we can have it both ways if we do it well. Uh, I think there's a commitment there to have both economic growth, jobs, good future, and at the same time preserving quality of our environment. And you're optimistic we'll be able to do that? If anybody in the world can do it, 
we can do it here in Puget Sound. That's former Seattle Times columnist Richard Larson, who passed away in 2001. I like how he said at the beginning of the interview how journalism found him. When I did the interview in the late 1990s, Facebook and all the other social media outlets didn't exist. He was already lamenting the fact that we were losing in-depth coverage in the media. I wonder what he would think today. Now back to the remarks about his coverage of Ted Bundy. I believe Richard Larson when he said that he felt at the time that there was a rush to judgment regarding Ted Bundy's guilt. You heard him say that he felt it was important to present the other point of view. On a personal note, I have known a few people who were close to Ted Bundy. They were all taken in by his powers. I don't think I have read about or observed another person in my life who has more persuasive powers than Ted Bundy did. I will close by saying that if a journalist of the caliber of Richard Larson was taken in under the spell of Ted Bundy, that shows how very dangerous he was. If you looked out the window and saw sunshine, but Ted Bundy was standing next to you and he said it was raining, you would probably say, you're right, Ted, it is raining. My commentary today is on organization, the real importance of being organized and how that helps you succeed in business. It is one of my questions I ask on the self-employment quiz. Are you organized? In real estate, the motto is location, location, location. In business, it's organization, organization, organization. Time is your most precious commodity. The best use of your time should be spent selling your product or service. No one can do that like you. It is your vision. Don't abdicate that to someone else. Contract out repetitive functions like bookkeeping. Also, think about this. Saving two hours commute time a day will save you one full year of productivity in approximately 10 years. Organization or lack of organization often makes the difference between success and failure in the business. Success in business is all about developing systems that make doing your job at various levels easier and more profitable with each passing day. And the more organized you are, the faster and easier it will be to manage your business and make money. Being organized instills a sense of confidence in your clients and potential clients. There used to be and I say used to be, a print shop across the street from my office. I used to walk into the print shop and see scattered files all over the place, discs in disarray. It didn't really instill a lot of confidence that I would want to leave a big print project with them. And I didn't. I walked out never to return. That print shop no longer exists, and I'm not surprised. Bottom line, always be thinking of ways of making your company more organized, and that will make it much more efficient, and also save you a lot of money. And think about this, when you're on Facebook reading about flying monkeys in Australia or looking at some friend of yours or distant acquaintance on a European vacation going down the Rhine River waving at you, what did you learn from that? You really must discern how you spend your time. This is really extremely important to your overall success. Stay focused and stay organized.
Well, that's all the time we have for this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. I would like to thank Stuart Elway, John Roadhamel, and Eric Larson for sharing their wisdom and experience with us today. If there are any comments that you would like to make about today's show, call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425-653-1166. Please keep your comments short so I can get them on the air if you want me to. And please specify that it is okay to air your comments. Otherwise, I will not do it. That phone number is 425-653-1166. I had an extensive interview with former Seattle Mayor Norm Rice, a true voice of experience. Norm Rice was mayor of Seattle from 1990 to 1998. He also governed at a very divisive time, and we talk about that. I believe Mayor Rice was the best mayor that I have observed since I've been in Seattle, which has been a considerable time. Mayors including Wes Ullman, Charles Royer, and Greg Nichols, we've had some really good mayors. Now, you'll be hearing from all of them in the coming weeks. Now, Norm is going to share his deep concerns about what he has observed and about the direction of this city right now. And also, he will announce who he supports for the next mayor of Seattle. So that's Norm Rice next Wednesday, October 20th at 3 p.m. on Kixie AM 880 and KKNW AM 1150. And again, what's Voices of Experience about? I'll repeat one more time. It's about people with experience in their fields, like public affairs, self-employment, travel, lifestyles, health and fitness, and history. And remember to tune in to Reigniting You with Lisa Downs every Monday afternoon at 3 p.m. right here on Kixie. Lisa addresses mid to late career moves for people over 40 years old. Should you stay in your traditional job right now? Should you retire permanently or just semi-retire? What are the options? She is there to help you work that through. Again, that is Mondays at 3 p.m. on Kixie. Quote of the week for this week. I like this one because it's kind of scary. I fear the day that technology will surpass our human interaction. The world will have a generation of idiots. Albert Einstein. Next week, I welcome to the show former Seattle Mayor Norm Rice. He served as mayor from 1990 to 1998. I sat down with him and talked with him about how he views the city now, the direction we're going, and where we've been. This is just a preview of an extensive interview I have with Norm Rice next week. When the city moved to districts, there was an underlying problem. Because when you represent a district, you don't always have to think of the city as a whole. You have to satisfy the citizens of that district. And if you really think about it, sometimes that could be more of a narrower minority than a majority. And at the end of the day, when you want to see a city grow and move, there has to be consensus of everybody to see that. And what are the things that are necessary for that to happen? A viable business community, a viable income spread. And Seattle, like the rest of other cities in the state, we only have a sales tax that can drive everything. We don't really have an income tax. And I don't think there's a politician who who even would dare say we're going to have an income tax. We've tried and we've not got it. So what happens is we start moving around the edges. And when people start to run, 
when people decide to run, they can pick, almost cherry pick their constituencies without really thinking about uh, the city as a whole and where you want to take it. And I'm surprised with some reporters and people who cover, they don't ask people that question. And so what happens is, in the the editorial and the writing about things, it's about the conflict rather than the direction. It's it's about what are people angry about and who are you against and what you're going to do because that's that's what sells papers. So having a strategic thought about where we're going to go and convincing the uh, uh, voters where to go really becomes a challenge. So we pick the edges. We pick the controversial issues, and we really move away from what are the necessary investments we need to make to make people whole. Do you think that this is kind of the way we're going in every place now, national, state, local? It's just like everybody joins their own tribe, and it is divisiveness that really drives everything now. It's, it's a little more complicated, but I think if you try to narrow it down, it's that. It is that, you know, back in the day when we were reporters, if it bleeds, it leads, you know what I mean? So it's like you go for the extreme controversy to talk about things, and most people don't have a vision about where we ought to be and how we ought to go there and how do we do it together. So what, what most candidates running have learned how to divide the constituencies around their you know issues rather than a healing. So my, my biggest thing that keeps me up at night and worried is I don't hear anybody who knows how to heal. Uh, and and maybe I'm old fashioned, but how do you get people to see a common vision, a common goal, and understand that plight and say I want to help? It seems like we are, we've got, what, maybe five or six little subgroups that push things, and they don't all want the same thing. And so it's hard to get consensus. I don't see the kind of leadership that is necessary to create it, and uh, I think it's going to be that way for a little while. You're supporting Bruce Harrell for mayor. Yes. Do you think he's the type of individual who can do what you're talking about? I'm hoping that as he goes with this campaign, he'll see what he needs to bring about that consensus. And if he really sees it and understands it, he'll he'll achieve it. But if you run and you say, I won with a narrow constituency, the, the biggest thing is, who are you going to bring together to bring forward? Because it isn't going to be just you. It's the council. It's a lot of people who don't like him. You know what I mean? So how do you gain consensus?